Good afternoon. This is our final session of this um, series, and uh, the topic is a strategy for Jewish renewal, as you heard. And uh, I want to start with that fact, namely, that we need a strategy. The title, in part, is a kind of a warning or a challenge, because, in fact, I believe that we are at one of these tipping point situations, if you don't mind a cliche there, in Jewish life, in Jewish life in America, and in Jewish life in general. In essence, I would argue, if we don't get our act together, our future is at stake and at risk. Uh, if we do get our act together, I think this is an opportunity for blossoming and for renewal, a renaissance, that it will be something truly historic. But one has to start with the reality that right now, American Jewish life is in a kind of a, a race, a bipolar, bi, bipolar, what do you call that, bipolar syndrome or condition. Assimilation, and perhaps the most dramatic um, statement or uh, statistic of that assimilation, the intermarriage rate is extremely high. Uh, after as late as 1960, the national Jewish intermarriage rate was somewhere under 14%. Between 1960 and 1990, the rate went to 52%, as measured in the 1990 uh, population survey. It caused a great storm, as you will recall. Since then, there's been a great argument about the accuracy or reliability of those statistics. They may be overstated. Not clear that it, the, the whole issue of the numbers is at stake, too. It is at least serious case has been made that the numbers of Jews in America was understated by those surveys. Nevertheless, almost every local community survey and the 2,000 somewhat more complicated national population study, all of them suggest that the intermarriage rates are roughly holding steady now for 10 years at around between 40, 42, and 50 percent which means that for more than two decades now, the intermarriage rate has been 50% plus, or in that range. And that means, of course, the um, future community is being shaped by the intermarriage rates of, this, of these last two decades. And um, intermarriage itself is not the last word, but it is an important indicator. And the path of least resistance in a society that's open, and that's the main point. This is the most open society of all time, America. Uh, in some ways, and I feel <clears throat> I have to be careful that I shouldn't fall into this trap myself, it is so different, I think, because I think this is the first genuinely pluralist society of all time. Now, I'm in Orange County, so I'm probably wrong to say it, but, but I think it is a pluralist society, by which I mean to say there is no, or at least it's been severely shaken, or if not broken, the notion that there is one dominant group, which is the true paradigm, the true model of America, and all the others are welcome, maybe even hospitably welcome, but they're, as it were, interlopers. Of course, the great symbol of that transformation is the the movement from the 1960s till now. In the 1960s, Will Herberg put out this book, 
Protestant Catholic Jew, in which he made the point that America, for the first time, had moved from a kind of a tolerance of Jews and acceptance, which is not to be made light of, um, a kind of a beginning of the post-anti-Semitic atmosphere, and anti-Semitic rates in America were high until World War II, but have dropped steadily since World War II. Most Jews don't want to believe this, but in fact, the, the uh, anti-Semitic rates have dropped sharply and have now become marginal throughout America, and in particular, the more educated and the more uh, socially advanced, the lower the anti-Semitic attitudes, rates, etc. So here you have the breakdown of the old anti-Semitism, a kind of a breakdown of the dominant notion America is a Protestant country. So of course Herberg's point was that for the first time in our history in diaspora and for the first time in American history, people didn't talk of America as a Protestant country. John F. Kennedy played a big role, the breakthrough of the Catholics, but his point was that by the late 60s, America was talking about Protestant Catholic Jew. In fact, one Protestant leader complained, Morris Kurtzer reports that story, Rabbi Morris Kurtzer reported, complained to him, this isn't fair, he said, it's now become Protestant Catholic Jews, so every national great event, the inauguration, so on, they have one, you know, one priest, one minister, one rabbi. It's like the Jews are one-third of the population. <laughs> it's not fair. This. The Jews, after all, are 2% of the population. To which um, Kurtzer, with a, with a little gleam in his eye, a wink, said, no, no, we've done better than that. The leading group into group relations is the National Conference of Christians and Jews. <laughs> anyway, so at sometimes it seemed like, if not, we're not 50% or 30% of the population, we were equal. The Jewish penalty, which has been characteristic for 2,000 years, if you were a Jew, you paid a penalty, you were an outsider, you were a pariah, you were inferior, you had all these negative associations. Jews have horns, Jews have, have to go through the whole routine with you, you know it very well, has broken down. And not just vis-a-vis -vis Jews. I mean, the, uh, President Obama, of course, is a leading symbol of the breakdown of the dominant Protestant white image. Um, Obama himself, in his talk, went out of his way to mention Buddhists and Muslims and, of course, non-believers. So there you go as a kind of a breakdown and the development of a pluralist model. What's the outcome? The outcome is that in this society, every person is exposed to what used to be the other outsider, different, but every lifestyle exposed to every other in the most positive and powerful way. Not clear under those circumstances whether any religion or any tradition, not just the Jewish, can maintain itself as a minority in the presence of every other viewpoint presented positively. In other words, Jews survived as a minority for much of the diaspora because, frankly, we were persecuted, but we were a closed circle, and the others were outside the circle. They were not just Gentiles, they were Goyim, which is to say, other, ugly, <laughs> inferior, morally and culturally inferior, dangerous people, and so on and so forth. Well, when that breaks down, when you're next to a neighbor, when your best friend, when your business associate are not only non-Jews, they're nice people, they're wonderful people. And suddenly, the whole 
inner outer distinction breaks down. By the way, it's not just for Jews. It, it, think of the poor evangelical parents. You raise this kid your whole lifetime. They should be good, faithful Christians. You send them off to college, you know, and the next thing you know, they're next door roommates with a Jewish person, and they discover that Jews are not, you know, condemned to hell forever and horns and so on. It's very shocking and it's very upsetting and nothing is sacred before you know it. So everybody is struggling. Can you maintain these values in the presence of the other? Blue often tells the story of uh, when we were raising our children, one day Guri, our youngest daughter, was home. She was sick from school. She was watching TV. Blue walked in at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and Guri is watching General Hospital. For those of you who remember General Hospital and um, she comes in, she says, oh, Goody, what's happening? She says, well, I'm watching. She says, well, what's happening? She says, well, you know, Laura's having an affair with Luke, and this one is committing incest, and this one is gay, and this one. And then she looks, says, never mind, Ima, you, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> now, if you think about it for a minute, we consider ourselves traditional, monogamous, committed to heterosexual marriage. I mean, you know, the most traditional family you could imagine, and our own home in the most powerful, attractive way. Every alternative lifestyle was being presented to our daughter in a very magnetic form. This is happening all over to everybody in every way. So is there a Judaism capable of maintaining itself as a minority position? My grandparents are not Jewish. Even if you're talking about a family in which the wife converted or the husband converted, which is not necessarily true, they're nice people. They have a nice, I'm exposed to Christmas, I'm exposed to their life. Why would I choose to be part of the minority? Just on that level before you get any further. So the obvious answer to all these is the same answer. If the Judaism is magnetic, if it enriches life, if it gives a difference that's worth living, then yes, I'm capable. In fact, I, I believe we can choose it. If, on the other hand, it's mediocre, it's no different. In the end, it really has no difference whatsoever. Then why should I continue with the stigma, as limited as it is, of being the minority when I can be part of the majority? So that, I believe, is the reality we're facing now. It's up or out, is the way I put it. Either Judaism becomes relevant, meaningful, an enrichment that's worth the extra effort, like people are willing to jog for miles a day because they want to be in good health. People are willing to eat in a more disciplined fashion, willing to do hundreds of things that take greater effort because it's a quality return. But people are not willing for the same standard stuff to pay more or to have an extra burden. So that's our challenge. And I would add to that two other qualifications. One is that this extra effort, extra quality question is the central challenge of being a minority in diaspora. It's very important that when we get caught up in the challenge of Jewish identity and Jewish values in this country, that we not forget that this is a unique situation. And at this very moment, almost 50% of world Jewry, which is in Israel, faces a very different set of challenges. They face this challenge too, but it's less so there because of the Jewish majority and they're surrounded by enemies but they face a direct physical threat, terrorism, war, Iran's nuclear threat. So we can't get so wrapped up in our own internal concerns that we forget we're part of one people and that a part of this people is in serious 
in an outrageous sort of way at risk and that's something that we can't forget or get wrapped up in our own issues and ignore them. And similarly, in Europe, to my shock and chagrin, there's been a clear upsurge of anti-Semitism and not just from the Arab Muslim population. So that even as I say our strategy for renewal here, I believe it becomes very important not to forget that the rest of world Jewry for which we have a responsibility. If we are serious Jews, we are one people, we are one family. We cannot forget their needs or their concerns. Now, let me <coughs> turn to the central question. Then what is the strategy for renewal that can cope with this incredible challenge and opportunity? I call it a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. The very openness of American society means that people listen to Jews, that they're willing to let you be Jewish. Joe Lieberman, who ran for president, Joe Lieberman, who was a serious, who was elected vice president of the United States, even though he never got to hold the position. Um, Joe Lieberman was, a, okay, that was a little political. I meant it personally, not politically so much on the Jewish side. The fact remains is that he was, as a Jew, identified, visible. He did not campaign on Shabbat. These are incredible, and it was accepted. In fact, it was in his favor. The, the polls showed that the voters respected that and did not impose a penalty. Why is he different? Why does he in some way not eat certain foods or not act in certain hours? So here's the opportunity. The acceptance means Jews can influence. As you know, Jews have become a standing uh, prestige source. The fact is, these are surveys have been done in the Ivy League. Many undergraduates, not Jewish, were looking for Jewish husbands. Uh, because the Jewish reputation, they should only know the truth, but the Jewish reputation was <laughs> that their husbands are good, they, it's a good catch because, well, the husbands, the reputations, they don't beat their wives, they, they don't drink, they bring home the paycheck. They're, so again, um, I mean, as I said, I, I don't want to argue for the truth of those rumors or, the, or those stereotypes, but, but that's the opportunity. Back to the question of up around. So how do we, in fact, deal with this? How do we have a renewal that would give us the strength not to withdraw? I don't think that's a serious option. I don't think, I mean, a small percentage of the Jewish people is willing to take that option, the Hasidim and so on. It's not going to happen. I believe, I believe that the withdrawal itself won't work, so it doesn't matter. In the end, I believe, although, again, I have to admit, I'm shocked sometimes by the extent to which liberal Jews support, underwrite, Hasidic or Lubavitch and so on, not so much because they practice that, but because in their heart they feel, well, we're not going to make it, we're going to assimilate, so this is my cover, and just in case they do, in fact, own heaven, they'll let me in because I supported them. <laughs> I supported them, and in the meantime, let me live it up on this earth. There's probably no heaven, but it, why not cover your bases and give a little money on the side? doesn't hurt. It's good, nice people, and so on. I mean, there's, there's that whole psychology that operates very strongly, but I, I, I reject that. I think it's a mistake. I think it's unhealthy for the children. If the Jewish activity support is one that you would never participate in yourself, I think it's a very bad model. And in an open society, particularly, people don't believe it. Your children understand what you're doing, not just what you're saying. So what can we do for Jewish renewal? Four simple points, and I hope to leave some time for my wife and our family. I'm the big talker, and I always overrun, so I hope I'll give her time for her comments. But I, I'd like to focus on one part of the strategy. One is, first I start with education, or to put it in the old terms, 
you know, what's the secret of real estate? Well, the secret of survival is education, education, education. Why is that so? Because when there are, when there's exposure to every alternative, when there is no forced pressure to stay separate, when the breakdown of all those barriers, I grew up, it was supposed to be, the, the joke was, Jews had five o'clock shadow during the, during the, those who recall the old Gillette advertisements, during the day you met with Gentiles, but at five o'clock the curtain came down and there was a segregation. That's over. All that is over so that if I am exposed to the alternatives, the alternatives turn out to be very beautiful, and very powerful, and very good. Here again, growing up as a Jew in the previous century, one had all these stereotypes, as they had it of us. You know, Judaism is some benighted religion. Jews are some strange people. Well, the equivalent on our side was that Christianity is a bizarre religion. Who would possibly believe it? I mean, come on now. Virgin births, I mean, come on. Uh, whatever. I mean, those are the realities that Jews had all these standard stereotypes. Christianity is an unbelievable religion. In fact, the only reason it's spread so successfully, it's spread among Gentiles. They're not too smart. Gaisha Cup, you know, so, so. But Jews know better. Well, of course, when those barriers break down, my own living experience, when I got involved in dialogue and began to meet people of extraordinary spiritual strength and power, when you can turn on your TV and be exposed to Christianity presented dynamically, powerfully, movingly, that doesn't work. So why would I choose to be Jewish? As I said before, the answer is obvious. If I have learned enough so that my vocabulary of my own life is enriched by Jewish. So the values are not themselves, excuse me, diff excuse me, different so much. We believe in freedom. Gentiles believe in freedom. We believe in human values, human dignity. Gentiles, other religions teach this. But again, my answer is, well, I believe in freedom. But you know something? If I celebrate freedom on July 14th, because that's the anniversary of the Bastille, fall, that I'm a Frenchman. If I believe in freedom and I celebrate every year, I remember the Alamo, I'm a Texan. And if I remember the Exodus, or if I remember I'm Malik, then I'm a Jew. So if I celebrate freedom by eating matzah, my values are no different, nor am I separated, divided from a non-Jew. But I'm experiencing a kind of a Jewish memory, a Jewish model that speaks in me and that makes me realize I'm carrying on a tradition that goes back for thousands of years, that I'm part of a mission, which I described the first night, I won't repeat that, that's trying to transform and perfect the world and trying to show the whole world how to get there. And that's something which makes sense because I have life-enriching experiences. On Shabbat for 24 hours, I live a different lifestyle, less pressure, more joy, more family time, more celebration, more singing of songs, more, more shared experiences. And you know what? This is a great religion. And it's worth having and celebrating, even as I appreciate the quality and the insight that Christianity gives to other people and to other experiences. So education is all about Jews learning their history, learning to experience the Jewish experiences that have shaped us, learning to a vocabulary, not just of words, of actions, of experiences that really taste extraordinary and therefore worth it. I used to joke about it, but I try to get people not only to keep Seder, which is still very widespread among Jews, but you know, take it the old-fashioned way. So, you know, 
get, as I would joke about it sometimes, don't just get regular matzah. That's pretty tasty and it's pretty nice. Get some old-fashioned handmade matzah shmura. The kind that's so hard knocks your teeth out. Now that, that's, that's the real taste of slavery, you know. Or again, amaro, you know, the bitter herb. So again, you can, on the Jewish law, you can even have romaine lettuce. I mean, but that's chicken. I, would, I used to argue, you know, get some really good old-fashioned horseradish. You know, you take, I mean, in the 60s, I remember you, you, we would try to put it, you, you take a bite of this stuff, I mean, it blows, your, it blows a hole in your head. I mean, it, it really, you know something? I used to, my oldest parents were going to see, when I was, the kids were taking marijuana, I'd say, give them moro, it'll cure their taste for mar <laughs> marijuana. will be boring after that, you know. So the, the point is, the point is, seriously, if one develops the vocabulary, the understanding, the memory, the taste, the experience, then this becomes not only a life choice, but a really meaningful way of being myself and being unique even as I participate in the total society. So there's no question in my mind that we're talking a major upgrade of education, or as I said, or out. And I can't stress it enough. I think people don't understand. For a long time, people thought education, well, you know, that's an orthodox thing. And of course, there was all these standing jokes. Orthodox, you know, they learn a lot, and the conservative they learn less, and reform even less. I mean, it's, a, it's not a joke. This is very serious. In, the, in this 2000 study, reform was the largest denomination for the first time, 35% identifies reform. That was the good news. The bad news was that when they went back and did analysis of these answers, would ask people, you say you reform. Is that because you belong to a reform congregation? They say, no. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you support reform causes? No. Well, why are you reform? Because reform says you do nothing and I do nothing, so I'm reformed. Now, the danger of that approach, of course, which is a dangerous approach, the kind of success that leads to destruction, of course, is that it's not true. First of all, it's not true. Anybody who's a principled reformed Jew understands reformed is about principled change. It's about recognizing the humanity and the fullness of non-Jews. It's about full equality and dignity. Women's a whole bunch of causes and principles. But if it ends up being I know nothing, that's the definition, then the answer is it's not communicable to your children, and that's why assimilation rates are highest in reform circles. And it's something that, as I say, cannot maintain itself in the long run, in my judgment, precisely because of the welcoming strength of the open society. So you heard here first, my prediction is obvious, that to renew and to survive the Jewish people has to and is in the process of upgrading its educational experience and its life. And the growth of education, again, CSP is not just a commercial because I'm here under its auspices. That's the point. Every community is going to have to develop a wide-ranging set of experiences. I'll come back to in a moment because it's not just intellectual experiences we're talking about. But I, as we hear first, in the long run, my argument is reform will have to become educated to the highest level, just as every other group will have to become educated to the highest level. And now, thanks to internet and computers, you can not only get educated, if you teach people the basic principles, you can have access to all the information. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the greatest Orthodox decisor of the 20th century, did not know by heart all the previous precedents that are available to you from the Bar Ilan University for 150 bucks. You can buy a CD that will give you all of the Talmud, all of the rabbinic rulings since the Talmud to our time, so you can be a greater scholar than the greatest Orthodox decisor of the 20th century, 
with a minimum of educational experience and a, and a good computer. And I believe that's what's going to happen, that everybody's level, because it, you need a high level of understanding. In fact, my old a joke, but it's true. The more integrated your life, polls have showed that the move on the spectrum from right to left is typically a social mirror. Orthodox have the least contact with Gentiles, conservative more, reform more, reconstructionist more, and so on. So my argument always has been, we got this all wrong. It's the people most exposed to Gentiles who need the most highest level of education and the highest level of distinctive practice. My argument is Orthodox don't need kosher. They're, they're insulated from Gentiles mostly. It's the reform who need kosher. So I've been trying to sell this, but no one's listening to me. Anyway, so education is the first priority for the Jewish community. Secondly, I would say in particular what I call total Jewish environmental experiences, not just learning, not just intellectual, but what I call total Jewish environmental experiences. What does that mean? Most people absorb their identity in a natural way. They live it. The environment around them communicates it to them, and they absorb it. That's how you become American. You grow up, you watch TV, you look at the calendar, you read, you listen on the street, you read the newspapers. All of these things give you the American message a hundred different ways. And we could go through the American narrative. I don't have to go through right now. What's the equivalent in the Jewish experience? In the diaspora, the answer is there is no such equivalent in Israel. It's the equivalent. You go up, you hear Hebrew, you grow up on the street, you learn the experienced Jewish people, you watch TV, you watch the holidays, the calendar, all of these things give across the Jewish narrative. The equivalent in America is what I call total environmental experiences. What are they? Day schools as compared to Hebrew schools, camps, Jewish camps, youth movements, birthright Israel, a trip 10 days to Israel, six months in Israel, a year in Israel, visiting Israel. Why? Because in this total Jewish environment, there's certain standing characters. First of all, start the whole environment is Jewish. In America, the Jewish is a minority. It's a kind of, even when it's fully accepted, it's still a kind of a little bit offbeat, off-center. And in a way, you sort of say, the real message of identity is something else. This is a kind of a minor or a side message. But in Israel, where the Jews are the total environment majority, it's the main message. So what is Villuel in America? Well, in a day school, or in a camp, or in a retreat, a retreat center. I believe here's where you have this total Jewish environment, where the symbols and the art are Jewish, where the calendar reflects Jewish, where the leadership, the teachers, the role models are Jewish and models of high-level Jewishness personal commitment, intellectual cap capacity, stimulating, challenging, where the peer group that I'm with is not only Jewish, but Jews I'd respect, Jews who are my peers, Jews who share my life and whose values I want to be part of. You create these kinds of experiences on a retreat. Birthright Israel, when we set up Birthright Israel, 10 days, there were a lot of people who objected, including educators. How can you in 10 days accomplish anything? Well, of course, they were wrong. The power of Birthright Israel was, and they, we have discipline studies, they come back and for years it changes their life. We only, the oldest group is less than 10 years, but in these 10 years that has not faded the impact because for 10 days you're with a peer group that's Jewish and exciting. It's your peers you look up to. They're, they're not losers, they're winners. They're not 18th century and very charming exotics. No, no, they're real. They're sharing my lifestyle. And I want to be like them. And we're in a country where 
Jewish Hebrew, Jewish history, etc., is alive and saturates us. And it's not just ancient history. It's Coca-Cola in Hebrew. It's, it's Tel Aviv nightclubs. But it's part of an experience where the whole environment is vital Jewish living, not mediocre. And it's not just intellectual, it's experiential. One of the greatest risks we have in Jewish life in America is people have lots of experiences. They go to synagogue regularly or may go to Hebrew school regularly, but it's a very mediocre experience. It never moves me. It's a kind of, you go through it, get rid of my mitzvah, okay. Maybe the party was exciting, but beyond that, was I moved? Did I cry? Did I dance? Did I reach a certain level of inspiration? For the most part, the answer is no. That's why, again, birth race has such tremendous power. Because for 10 days, they were flying. I always tell people, you're on the, on the runway. If you run your engines at 5,000 RPMs, you'll never take off. So you can run them for the next 20 years, you'll never take off. If you run them for 10 or 20,000, it takes off, you're flying. Well, once you've flown, you have a whole different conception of what airplanes are like. And that's exactly my point about Jewish life. So total Jewish environmental experiences that combine the group, the leadership, the language, the experience, the emotional as well as intellectual. Every Jew is entitled to such experiences, must have such experiences. And if you have that experience, it will excite you and renew you, and you'll go back to a synagogue or go back to a Hebrew school, whatever it is, and you will have a different level of involvement. So that is something that should be provided by right now the brilliance of Birthright Israel. It's a free gift from the Jewish people to young people 18 to 26. I believe the equivalent should be made available to every young couple, to every young family. Will you go away for a weekend? Better still for a week. In that week you experience the Jewish narrative, some of the basic skills of Jewish living, how you can apply it to your work, to your society. That should be given, I believe, ideally for free. Obviously, the community will have to pay taxes and raise the money on a level it's not doing right now. But that is what I mean by making a total environmental experience part of the Jewish birthright of every human being who is, is or wants to be Jewish. Second major new element, I believe, is what I would call the life cycle. Actually, J.J., our son of blessed memory, developed this. We had a whole series of studies for Jewish Life Network. There are many points in the life cycle where people are open to new experience and seeking. For example, again, starting with birth of a child. It's a very special experience. Changes your life, makes you really feel you're part of a chain, part of something. That's a moment when people are open. The community should approach them. As the Harold Grinspoon Foundation has something called the PJ Library. They'll send you books when you have a new child and from that time on, every month or so, the books are a gift. Again, you read to your child, they'll send you a record once or twice a year or a film. Family experiences that bring the Jewish into the home. We're involved in a project called Early Jewish Childhood Education Initiative. Again, that's a moment. Child begins to go to school just before grade one, kindergarten, nursery. An opportunity, not just for the children, but for the family to make a Friday afternoon Shabbat experience that turn, come, they're going to be brought home to, to learn some of the basic skills of Jewish parenting and so on. At every point in the life cycle where people are open, to take advantage of that opening to reach out to them in a new way. At marriage, at, at uh, for that matter, at life 
setback moments too. In other words, a, a divorce or a failure and whatever. Those are moments when the community has to make experiences available, see them as moments when people can really reconnect to their memory. I believe this has to be done up and down the life, life scale. So the average Jew should be born well as a child. They'll have the PJ Lowry, they'll have early childhood experiences. Day school is preferred, to, in my judgment, to Hebrew school because it's a total environment. If we have a Hebrew school, and a majority are going to Hebrew school, they have to be upgraded substantially, and I think one of the ways to upgrade them is to use total environmental experiences. Youth movements, which have been neglected in the last decade, tremendously powerful experiences. If you look at the reform rabbinate, at the conservative rabbinate, the major resource they have developed for their rabbinate has been the youth movements, but these have been starved financially, have weakened in the last day, partly because the competition is harder. Teenagers have much more competition for their time now, internet and computer and so on. Nevertheless, there's a missed opportunity there, a total environment of a youth group working together, doing mitzvahs together, doing social activity together, doing social justice action together. Beyond the youth movement, Hillel, uh, at the college level, Birthright Israel, again, these total opportunities Retreats, retreats, retreats. I believe this whole structure along the life cycle, Elderhast, has to be done and has to be made universally available to all Jews. Now again, part of the problem is the typical synagogue, which is still the main focus of Jewish life, the synagogue has its own responsibility, its own budget, its own preoccupation, but doesn't necessarily have the energy to reach out beyond its own membership. So again, there are two ways of doing that. One is that the community at large create programs like CSB, or two, the synagogues cooperate with each other. I'll finish with that at the end, but I think that's an example, again, of structuring Jewish life. Two other quick examples, outreach. Outreach means they don't always come to you, you have to go to them. It's a basic rule of every brand and every marketing. Well, this is the reality with religion, too. We're in an open society where every lifestyle is available, then you've got to be out there and present it and make it available. And if they don't come to you, you go to them. There are two ways of doing that. One way, which I believe you've had Klal and Erwin Kul out here, has tried to do in the last 10 years, I must say it was after my time, but go into the media, go into the general media and reach Jews that way. Some Jews will never come to synagogue, never to buy a Jewish book, but they turn on tune into a regular, or Oprah, or they'll tune into whatever regular broadcast, if one can get into that world. Shmuley Boteach has tried to do this. Get in through that and make a Jewish model, a Jewish figure available. That's an important outreach way. The other outreach way, um, or a Seder at the White House for that matter, these are ways of making people aware of the Jewish availability. The second way, which I think is not being done, needs to be done, is there should be a Jewish outreach core, just as we have an America core teaching suburban deprived, uh, uh, urban deprived children to teach them better. Well, the average Jewish child in a way is like an urban underprivileged deprived child. We should have an outreach program to them too. There is of course a major outreach program in Jewish life is Sabavich, Chabad. And after them, the next largest groups are also very much from the Haredi world. Now, I honor them in that they are committed, they're out there, they have reached out, they are welcoming, they're warm. But in the end, I think there's something very unhealthy here, that the major outreach core of the Jewish people are people who are living a pre-modern lifestyle, who in the end 
have a very different conception of women's roles, have a very different conception of what is the basic uh, calling of work and participation, what is the basic attitude toward non-Jews. It's not healthy. Children will not identify with that, will not join that. A small percentage will, of course, but a very small percentage. And the rest are simply left, maybe they'll appreciate it, maybe they'll even admire the people, but they're not going to live that way. And in the end, if you can't live it, you're not going to keep it. So there's a major job ahead of us of the mainstream Jewish community creating its own outreach core. I have to say, my personal experience, Michael Steinhardt, I served the president of his foundation the last 10 years, just before I retired last year. We met because he spoke to me. I was, of course, at a cloud at the time, and he said to me, he has a son who's on college campus. The particular college campus he's on, the Hillel, was not effective. He went, Michael wanted his son to be attracted. So he went first to, uh, I believe he went to HUC first, to the reform movement. Then he went to the conservative movement. Then he went to Shea University and Rabbi Lamb. And basically said, I'll pay for it if you would send some person or persons to that campus to create some sort of more effective outreach. At the end, each one came back and said, sorry, I have nobody, or we're not interested, or this is not our project. So finally, after, in desperation, he met a very traditional yeshiva person, a, a, a Haredi rabbi, who told him, oh, I'll do it for you, I promise. And he offered him, he was going to pay for it a half million dollars a year, he was going to bring 10 couples to Duke University. They were going to live on the campus or nearby, and they would create a little kolel that would study Talmud together, but they would reach out to the students. And he offered to put up the money, and the fellow began to organize it. Anyway, he came back about a year later, said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. He couldn't get 10 couples. They, were, they didn't want to go on to the Duke campus. I guess it was too risky to be exposed to this lifestyle. So I came that day, he was very frustrated and very upset, and he kind of said to me, I don't know, I've tried everything, what do you think of this project? He showed me the project. So I read the project carefully, and I said, are you telling me that you funded this project? He said, well, I put up the money, but now they've come back and they said they can't do it. I said, well, forgive me, you're not a serious person. I said, think of this project for two minutes. I said, what do you think were the chances of getting 10 people who are Yeshivas in their style, they, they're, they're very uncomfortable with the open society, they're very uncomfortable with women's roles, they're very uncomfortable with the kind of freedom socially, sexually see around them. What do you think the chances are that they will come to a campus? He said, well, obviously, you know, now they turned out I couldn't get them. I said, yes, now let me ask you a second question. What if they had come to the campus and set up this program? What do you think the odds of your son joining them would be? <laughs> he thought for me, he says, well, I guess not very high odds. I said, well, let me ask you a third question. What if, against the odds, he had joined them and become like that? How would you feel? <laughs> I said, well, I guess I wouldn't be very excited, would I? I said, well, you're not serious. Or it's that the philanthropists of America are not serious. They have to stop and ask, what are you offering young Jews? The answer is it should be someone who's a role model for them, like them, in every way and fashion. It's an open society, and the more models, the richer the models, the more you're going to hit, and the less, the less you're going to succeed. So we need a major outreach program. I want to say one more thing about Blue's, but I want to say at the end, so I'd like to start with Blue because there's one whole frontier or sector of renewing Jewish life that I don't think I'm nearly as the expert as Blue is, besides I wanted to have the privilege of hearing the better side of his family, and that is the role of family and tradition. So I think in talking about strategies for the future, 
Uh, I want to just focus on two areas. Um, one is Jewish popular culture. And I don't think that the community invests enough in Jewish popular culture. Uh, and uh, it's uh, Jewish popular culture is, you know, go where your customers are. That's the basis of Jewish popular culture. And as a community, you know, we want to reach the next generation. We want to reach the young adults of this generation. And they're not to be found sometimes in the places that we think that they are or in the places even where the, that Yitz was talking about. When I was um, growing up, when I was a teenager, I, I, I read two books. I grew up, as I said, in a very in intensely Jewish home and a very Zionist home. There were two books that had a, made a profound had a profound impact on me, and they were in the popular culture. One was Amila 18, and the other one was Exodus. There were two books that I, as a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old, I just actually I sat through the night, or for I'm a slow reader, so maybe through the days and nights, until I finished those books. It's in a, they were inspirational to me. And there was nobody who lived in a home where she could have gotten any more inspiration than I did. And yet these things came through what I, what I call the, the popular culture. So I think that we have to think about putting in, investing um, in ways that we actually solicit creative people in our universe, in our American universe, to produce things that will find the readership in the places uh, where they, they, they live. Um, Makor, which it's mentioned, uh, was that was really the basis of Makor, because these were young Jewish people who wouldn't uh, I remember the focus study, the focus groups that uh, that our son did on where, how could they reach all the Upper West Side West Siders who were going to bars, which is a very respectable thing for young professionals to do these days. When I was growing up, if you went to a bar, you were thought of as a low life. But bars today are very popular places, so. Makor was created to have some sort of equivalence of culture and, and friendship and, uh, you know, wine and uh, all the things that young people who, after a long day of work, were looking for. And it, they came in through, so to speak, the, the universal door to Makor, and, uh, and they moved up step, actually, in levels of four levels of the building. They moved up Jewishly as well. Um, and I, they also met other Jews. So uh, those are some examples. The second is the Jewish family. And we haven't really talked too much about the Jewish family. Uh, it is, I think we would all agree that it's the most important institution strategically, more than Jewish educational institutions or the synagogue. And I hope uh, I'm, no one uh, will... I mean, I'd be happy to hear if there is a disagreement. No, I wouldn't be happy to hear it, but I'm, I'm open to it. Uh, uh, but I think probably the Jewish family is really where values are imparted. And it is the covenantal institution, as Yitz spoke about the other day, which is that what you can't do in one generation in terms of passing on the values you have to do through, through the coming generations to carry it forward. We know that the family is under tremendous attack in this generation. We live in a divorce culture. The way I found this out was on a trip to California a number of years ago. 
uh, going from the airport in Los Angeles to uh, Beverly Hills, there was a neon sign that was flashing. It was selling something. It was divorce. It was flashing divorce. And that was come in and get a quick divorce if, you know, your, your marriage is, is not working. We actually know that the statistics of um, divorce in this country have uh, uh, escalated to 50%, which means that 50% divorce rate means that every couple who marries today has a 50% chance of being married in 10 years. That's what a 50% divorce rate means. Jews actually have are slightly better, um, which is a 40% rate, which is a symbol of that we're more committed to traditional family stability, although it's a huge jump from the 7%, which uh, where we found ourselves uh, uh, one generation or one and a half generations ago. When Jews wouldn't divorce, I, I had an aunt and an uncle who were married for 60 years, but for 50 of those 60 years, they didn't speak to each other. They, they lived in the same house, and my uncle was a rabbi. If he would have gotten divorced, uh, he would have been out of a job before Mincha. That was, you know, the, the way it was. But um, so I, I'm, I don't, I think divorce in that situation would have been a lot healthier, a lot more ethical and humane, but at any rate, that's not the situation we're facing today. The truth is actually that I just should share this with you, which is Jews remarry more often than any other religious or ethnic group. That's courtesy of the Catholic Church uh, produced that statistic. Actually, Yitz has a very interesting explanation. He says, Jews never learn. <laughs> Um, but still, 40% is actually is really high, and there's a great deal of upheaval, and it's very costly. To many times, it involves running two households. When I was involved in the Commission on Synagogue uh, Relations of the Federation a number of years ago, I remember the Long Island rabbis complaining about the first thing to go. There was a lot of divorce, uh, and it was just hitting the, the Long Island rabbis with a tremendous force. And the first thing to go, they said, of course, was the synagogue memberships and the Talmud Torah uh, tuitions and the after Hebrew school tuitions. It also accompanies, accompanied a divorce culture, a low birth rate, and a loss of important um, um, uh, childbearing years. Which is, and it brings me to another issue, which is the low birth rate in the Jewish community in general. Although other ethnic groups are catching up uh, as they get as they move up the socioeconomic scale, um, but we, as a very small people, uh, are more threatened by a low birth rate, a non-replacement. We we don't have ZPG, we have NPG, which is not replacing ourselves, and. Um, the birth rate is 1.6. It's actually been stable, 1.6, 1.7. It's been more stable in the last decade, and uh, some hopeful signs there. But um, it's still, because of intermarriage, because of uh, other factors, uh, we need a replacement level of 2.3. So you can see that we're well, well below that. There's also a great deal of living in a singles culture. I live in. Uh, Riverdale, which is adjacent, which is very close to the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and there are some 50,000 uh, singles on the Upper West Side, and actually 40,000 of them are women. Tremendous, really high preponderance of women. 
which is, so we have to find a new source of men. I say we should have, you know, Miss Porter schools for some of these wonderful young Russian men who are coming here and give them a little, fix, fancy them up a little bit, but that's another story. Um, infertility is a greater problem among Jews uh, than other ethnic groups, and uh, partly uh, it is, there's some genetic factors, but there's also, and there are also happily new findings to resolve some of those genetic factors, but it's also a function of later marriage. So these are just a few of the problems that uh, that diminish our ability to transmit values through the Jewish family, the, inst the unit of the Jewish family, which is this has always been the jewel in our crown. Um, okay, I've, now I've identified all the problems. My time is up. No, I have a few more minutes. I'll just try to solve some of these. Um, one is I think we can, we can have some practical responses to a divorce culture. And um, I've, one I've uh, thought of, well, a, a few I'll mention. One is our, what I call RR, which is rabbinic recall. Um, by that I mean rabbis recalling couples whom they marry. Rabbis are the ones who marry young couples, and then that's the end. They don't see them oftentimes until the divorce is at hand. So once, maybe after a year, and there's a lot of first-year divorce in the Jewish community, after a year or maybe two years, a rabbi calls a couple come, to come back for a conversation. A rabbi is still a neutral person and someone, a person whom I, people respect. And sometimes a conversation opens up. Actually, I know of a rabbi on the Upper East Side who did this. He, had, he would call couples in, uh, he had a young couples group that actually came and talked about marriage problems, and what he reported was something interesting. He found, to his surprise, how much could be discussed in terms of the difficulties facing early years of marriage in the presence of others without betraying confidentiality. You wouldn't think that that would be so, but I guess it is It is so. Um, so that's one. Rab people not waiting until, you know, the marriage falls apart, but rather to invest some communal energy to uh, preventing the dissolution of a, of a potential Jewish family. Um, career counseling for couples, which is a, sometimes a, a point at which when now that women have, are fully entitled and have expectations of careers, that these things are resolved rather than, in, rather than being, having to be um, seen as competitive, but rather some kind of communal resource for career counseling for couples. We have career counseling for individuals. Um, Jewish family life training in high school. So when we, when we still have access and are able to do these things, because uh, you can't do this in college, but we can do this in our local communities of Jewish family life training. What are the expectations? How is a young man uh, to uh, incorporate the, the needs of women? How does a woman uh, incorporate her needs for career and, uh, and, and child raising? Um, the whole question of single women that I mentioned before, I don't think we do enough matchmaking, and I find myself, as I 
was thinking about this, I, I had a feeling of guilt because I used to have a refrigerator list, which actually I took off the refrigerator because I thought it was a little embarrassing for some people to come to my house and see their name on a refrigerator list. I put it inside the cupboard, but I don't know what happened to it, and I really have not attended to this. And I know oftentimes somebody will say to me, you know, I have a really nice young man or this nice young woman, and they give me their, and then I don't do anything about it. And I should take the initiative, even without waiting for somebody, when I hear of someone and know someone. We have a good friend, uh, Els is her first name, and she used to, she's a, a little older now, but she used to organize these singles uh, dinners or Purim parties at her house, just a way of bringing couples together. And there were several L's couples. And you know the reward for bringing, um, making a match is a place in the world to come. So it's worth a little bit of effort there. Uh, so um, we also have to think about in terms of building the Jewish family. As I said, a lot of single women, and I know this from many single women I know, is um, encourage them to have children. Now that's a lot stronger a word than I would have used or that I did use um, a number of years ago when this idea I first uh, um, encountered or considered this idea. Um, But I think that I see many models of this, of young women deciding uh, to have their, a biological child, and uh, we should enable those women to do so. It's not easy. It's it's hard to raise a child even with two parents. It's harder to raise it as a single woman, um, but and and it's hard to raise it as a single man. Men are making this choice less than women, and there are more men around. Uh, you know, there are more wi- single women around. But we should find ways to try to enable this. Um, and we can do this as a community. Um, and I'll skip these other ideas, but just come to just last two things I want to say. It's hard for me to choose here, but okay. I'll choose this. Um, ritual. We don't have rituals that celebrate women as making the choice to become mothers. Now, a woman generally, except for single women, single mothers, you know, that's a decision that's made by a couple. But it's often, a, if a woman doesn't want to have a, a children, or a child or children, then she she does usually have the last word. Um, so I think we have to think about rituals that celebrate women who decide to have children. We have to sell it. What I'm talking about is, is rituals for mothering, rituals for giving birth. And um, r- rituals give value. Rituals impart value. So if our value is that we have more children in the community, more gen- the next generation, we have to think of rituals that can, that can do this. Um, the other is about feminism, which is, um, as you, those of you who were uh, with us last night, I spoke of very affirming feminism and its impact on Judaism or what its impact should be uh, as well. And I certainly am the beneficiary and found to live in the generation of feminism has been a great blessing for me. I also know that feminism has 
strengthened the Jewish family in many ways, but it has also undermined the Jewish family in some ways in terms of the competition between career and 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 raising children, uh, giving time to a family. I think a lot of women don't want to be super mom and can't be super mom. Super mom was something we tried to do in the 60s and 70s. It was exhausting. And um, some women can do it, but it's not for everyone. But I do think women still do want to keep the edge on nurturing. So there is that tension there. And we can communicate um, in a variety of ways. The whole idea of sequencing, not every single thing has to be done at, at every single given point. And we have education, a professionalization, a career, and childbearing. They don't all have to be done uh, at the very same time. I admire women who are able to do this, and I also sometimes see some of the tremendous strains uh, that such women carry. That, of course, will need an old boy network or the equivalent of that, so that women who give a certain number of years of their life to childbearing and child raising will not be paying a penalty for it when they you know, go back into the professional market at age uh, 33 or 35 or 40 and are up against all. We have to have uh, affirmative action, in a sense, for mothers, for Jewish mothers. The last thing I'll speak, say is about, and Yitz really spoke about this, and I spoke a little bit about it last night, is rituals, Jewish home living rituals, Jewish rituals in general, Jewish values. Even the way that if you do tzedakah with your children or grandchildren, you impart a value that is that somebody has a, need, a greater need than you do and that you give of yourself and you meet the needs of someone before you meet your own needs or... And, and take seriously, you know, the ability to step back in terms of your own um, satisfaction uh, to to help others. And the last thing I want to end on the note of Shabbat, the importance of Shabbat as an example of a ritual, my primary example of a ritual that strengthens the family in in unimaginable ways. The steadiness of the Shabbat ritual is what I think is what works and whatever way one celebrates it. But to take a day that is really a family and community day and to do that with great with regularity uh, and with the expectations of everyone, um, the, the impact of Shabbat, as Chadam once said, more than the Jewish people kept the Shabbat, the Shabbat kept the Jewish people. And I'd paraphrase that to say more than the Jewish family kept the Shabbat. Um, the Shabbat kept the Jewish family. Thank you.